Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. At Trinity Grace Church, our mission is to help New Yorkers grow in love by practicing the way of Jesus for the good of our city. If you're interested in Trinity Grace Church Tribeca, check out our website at tgctribeca.com where you can learn more about us and learn about ways that you can help support our church and this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to see and hear what's going on in our community. Thank you for joining us today and welcome grace and peace to you. Verses 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Our second teaching text is from Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the balls, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt, and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me, Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All of my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man 
the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord, and he will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. This is the gospel of our Lord. So I do love words, but I also love the space between words. And I would be really grateful if you would join me in a moment of silence. And just as we sing for people who may not be able to sing today, may we also pray for those who may not have words. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our God, our rock, our redeemer. Amen. When I saw that the gospel text assigned for this Sunday was the one of the rich fool, I was a bit nervous <laughs> for two things. Obviously, the subject of wealth or money is not the go-to topic to have a conversation with a group of people you just met, especially here in Tribeca, Fidei. <laughs> I, I remember Googling the zip code of the church to get a sense of the local context and just being astounded, like, is that an extra zero? <laughs> looking at the income and average cost of homes. And perhaps this is not the best time for me to confess that I have issues with wealth, but you know, I feel a lot better because um, Jamie um, just told me that you actually recite that beautiful generosity creed weekly, so I feel a lot better. <laughs> My pastor parents uh, might as well have taken a vow of poverty as they grew up in Korea and the Philippines, visiting orphanages regularly, I mean like every holiday. I was told countless stories of saints who gave up all of their earthly possessions and was made to memorize or maybe I just absorbed it through osmosis, right? Verses like, the love of money is the root of all evil, and you can't serve both God and mammon. And because of that bias, before I took a closer look at this text, I assumed I had an easy sermon about condemning the rich, you know, let's eat them, the 1%, comparing them to the, you know, agrochemical giant Monsanto who's exploiting workers in Earth worldwide, and start a rallying call for another Occupy movement, beginning right here. But to my disappointment, the rich farmer is actually not really portrayed as particularly evil or wicked in this passage. He doesn't seem to have gained his wealth illegally or exploitatively. He doesn't even seem all that greedy. You don't see him make plans to buy out all the other lands and start a monopoly on bananas. 
I'm sure the financial advisors and traders will find this plan to simply build a larger barn to store some of today's plenty for a possibly leaner tomorrow, rather boring and unambitious. Isn't he doing what we're all taught to do, regardless of our class backgrounds, which is that we should all be saving for a rainy day? So there's nothing wrong with this modest wealth. After all, he's not a modern-day billionaire who can feed half the world's population and then some. And if there's nothing wrong with saving a bit for the future, what do we make of God's indictment that he is a fool and that his life is being demanded of him, from him? Perhaps you've noticed the farmer's, the rich man's unrelenting self-preoccupation and the curious conversation he has with himself. Eugene Peterson's message Bible really hits at home. He talked to himself. What can I do? My barn isn't big enough for this harvest. Then he said, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll gather all my grains and goods. And I'll say to myself, self, you've done well. You've got a maiden and can now retire. Take it easy and at the time of your life. The relentless use of the first person pronouns of I and my and his endless self-talk betrays a deep solipsism and the world in which only the I exists. In this man's world, there's only him. There are no others present. They are invisible as they simply do not exist. How could we expect him to be thankful or to share his abundance with those who might be needy when he is only self-congratulating, failing to recognize the role of God or the generative and fertile land that he is lucky to have? or the hard labor of the workers that made the harvest possible. Here we have a vision of a person who has succumbed to the worshiping of the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. And his worshipful self-reverie is broken only by a voice of God that pierces through his self-enclosed world, which reminds him that he is but human, that is, fragile, vulnerable, and utterly dependent on others for sustenance. The Message Bible makes it clear that the issue here is less with wealth, but with worship and preoccupation of self. It records Jesus as saying, that's what happens when you fill your barn with self and not with God. This man then is deemed foolish because he has erased others in this imaginary world in which only he exists. And he thinks that his wealth somehow guarantees him security in life. He has made the mistake of according finite things infinite value, believing that he is insulated and safe from the vicissitudes of fate because of his possessions. He truly believes in the myth of individualism and self-sufficiency and that one's life consists in the abundance of possessions, but that is measured by how much one has. But could we really blame him? We do live in a world awash with marketing wizards that bombard us with a false message that life is indeed measured by and consists of what we have and what we want to do with it. Check out social media, and there you will find celebrities and ordinary people alike peddling and dangling the it item or experience or possession that it offers an alluring illusion of happiness. 
We live in the world where we are not loved and valued for simply being human, but are instead measured and ranked and compared to a such image or standard. And wealth is often the measure how we measure someone's worth, desirability, value. And we're all pushed to strive for more and more, to never be satisfied because there is always something better, something more exclusive. What we have is never enough. So the rich man's solipsism and self-preoccupation makes sense, given that we are taught to strive for whatever it is that we want. Distorting the necessary self-care to the level of self-obsession and absorption. We are to be unconstrained and unbound to nobody's agenda but ours. And hence, we often understand freedom to mean not having any external obligations or checks where we should be unbound from any and all obligations to others. That's how we understand freedom. And if you Google image that word, it often shows just one person, usually solitary, who's like jumping elatedly as if they just broke out of a prison. But such an understanding and vision of freedom fails to register the theological truth that we are relational and created to be in communion with God, with others, and with the larger world, the more than human community of animals and plants ecosystem. No matter the rich man's attempt to erase and invisibilize the presence of others, he can't alter that truth that true life is meant to be lived in communion with others and God, who is the ultimate giver of life. The truth is that we can never be and are not meant to be independent or self-sufficient, even if we would like to be, and even when we think wealth and possessions are the way to achieve that. Perhaps one of the reasons why we often fall for traps of self-sufficiency and buying to the myth is because we think we will be abandoned or cut off and we don't truly trust that there will be faithfulness and love and loyalty on the other side. So we cut ourselves off because money is dependable. It can, might not be able to buy love, but it sure buys its proxies, it can buy you companionship can buy you sex, it can buy you so many things. And it's all because we fail to trust God's promise that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is found through Jesus Christ. I find it interesting that in Hebrews 13.5, it reads, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. It is as if God knows our instinct for stockpiling and hoarding ultimately stems from our deep anxiety and insecurity and fears of, of abandonment by God and by others. So the rich man is foolish because he has fooled himself into believing that he can be insulated or secure because of his possessions. He is the living picture of Revelation 3.17, which reads, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. No amount of wealth or money can alter or cover up the fact that our lives are intensely vulnerable and fragile. 
It is indeed true that at any moment we could die, whether through accidents or ill health. Money cannot guarantee peace and harmony in our relationships, not with our friends, not with families, and if anything, as the opening of this gospel text tells us, money can often drive a wedge between family members, as in the case of the brothers who are fighting over an inheritance. This picture of the rich man lives actually deep inside each one of us, as this image is the picture of our most sinful self, which continuously falls for the illusion of self-sufficiency and independence. Sin is that which separates and cuts us off from God and one another. And this image is also embodied in the Hosea reading, as Israel is described as being hell-bent on turning away from God, as it mistakenly believes that life is being found, that life is found in being independent and disconnected. We might not want to admit it, but regardless, all of us are wired for connection to God and with another. And in Hosea, God is described maternally, like a breastfeeding mother who nourishes and feeds her child, who lovingly takes the infant to her face, provides healing touch and care for the babe, who's connected to child with the cords of human kindness and bands of love. The language of cords and bands of love evoke for me the umbilical cord that connects the baby to the mother. And the act of turning away and wanting to set oneself free can be likened to a baby trying to loosen and break the cord because it sees it as a chain or a noose, failing to recognize that it owes its very life to the life-giving nourishing tie that connects the baby to the mother. While we so often try to deny our mutuality, our deep interdependence, the fact that all of us being here is the result of someone's care and love for us, prophets throughout the Bible and beyond have emphasized and reminded us that we are not our own, that we are part of a larger interrelated nexus of relationship and belongings, and that we each have a part and that we belong. MLK Jr. wrote in his letter from Birmingham jail that all are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. And less famously, in a letter to a friend, Kafka wrote of a vision that he had one night. He wrote, people keep themselves at a tolerable height above an infernal abyss toward which they gravitate only by putting out all their strength and lovingly helping one another. They are tied together by ropes, and it's bad enough when the rope around an individual loosens and he drops someone lower than the others into empty space. Ghastly when the ropes break and he falls. That's why we should cling to the others. Perhaps the death notice that the rich man is given in the parable emphasizes the theological truth that insofar as this man fails to see his utter vulnerability, dependence, and interconnectedness with God and with others, insofar as he believes himself to not need anyone and beholden to no one and can only build a future in which only he is present, he has already lost what it means to be truly alive, what it means to be truly human. 
In Luke 15, in the famous parable of the lost son, the loving and merciful father describes the son who has abandoned and cut off the cord of love between parent and child for the sake of money as having died and being alive again, was lost and is found. Saying that the son had been dead when he wasn't literally dead reveals the theological truth that there is a life that is worse than death, a life devoid of relationships. And just as God is depicted as a merciful and loving God who welcomes and turns towards the son who has cut himself off, so God in Hosea is one whose love and mercy wins out over God's terrible anguish and understandable rage and heartbreak for a child who rejects and spurns God's love. The passage reveals of a God who continues to hold on to the cords of love and who refuses to let it go, whose ties of love prove to be unbreakable, even in the face of rejection and the other person letting go. And in contrast to the rich man or the prodigal son who has tried to substitute money for relationship and wealth instead of mutuality, who tries to cover over his vulnerability and dependence, we have a God who not, not only offers us life-giving instructions, but also actually models for us what it means to be truly human. Which brings us to the beauty of incarnation. In one of my favorite passages, Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer wrote, God becomes human, really human. While we endeavor to grow out of our humanity, to leave our human nature behind us, God becomes human, and we must recognize that God wants us also to be human, really human. Out of love for human beings, God becomes a human being. God does not seek out the most perfect human being in order to unite with that person, rather, God takes on human nature as it is. While we try to escape our humanity and our vulnerability, God embraces it in all of its vulnerability. And this God of the universe slips into the corner of our world virtually unnoticed 2,000 years ago into a marked body of a poor young girl. The creator God, the God of the universe, makes home in the body of, as a Bible scholar and theologian, Schuster Fiorenza puts it, a body of a young woman and teenage mother, Miriam of Nazareth, probably not more than 12 or 13 years old, pregnant, frightened, and single, living in occupied territory and struggling against victimization and for survival and dignity. There is something to be said about the way this God enters into the world, slipping through the cracks, unseen, unknown, unfelt, unnoticed by anyone but a poor young girl. God could have descended from the sky, shining with splendor, blazing with power and glory. But God entered like a secret and took time to grow until God is finally born, helpless, vulnerable, utterly dependent upon the care of others. God came to us as an infant, the very embodiment of our humanity, of our powerlessness. 
And the very mode in which God enters this world shatters and subverts any traditional notions of power and hierarchy and our deeply human desire for security and independence. And it is more than just the way that God came to us, but it's also in the way that God lived, in the way of Jesus, that we also see how humans should live. Instead of being locked up in the prison of our own making, caught off from God and one another, wrapped up in an endless loop of hollow self-talk while trying to find comfort in things that fail to satisfy us, Jesus shows the life of true abundance, joy, and generosity. Unlike the rich man who hoarded and saved only for himself and planned on feasting and being merry all by his lonesome self, sounds not very fun. We have Jesus who was lavish in his generosity and who, by the way, also enjoyed eating and drinking and being merry to the point of being accused of a drunkard. But what sets Jesus apart is that he shared table with others, not just with friends and families, but also with those who were poor and marginalized, turning away no one. And we should also be reminded of the fact that Jesus was also no stranger to being received into tables. We know from scripture that Jesus was not a rich man, but a poor man, a manual laborer, who subsisted and relied on the generosity and care of others once he began his ministry. You know, we remember the miraculous feeding stories of Jesus and his setting table for his disciples, but we should be reminded that Jesus was no stranger to receiving hospitality and generosity. He knew very intimately with every fiber of his being the nourishment that comes, that feeds not just the body but the soul when one is received and fed and cared and loved by another. The way of Jesus contrasts sharply to the story of the rich. Jesus lived his life for and with others, freely giving just as he humbled himself also to receive the offerings from God and other people. And it's not just in the death of Jesus, but in the way he laid out his life and he lived from the beginning of his birth to the very last moment that he showed us what it means to live a life that is truly, beautifully, fully human. And in his farewell message to his disciples, a message that was also embodied in his action of washing their feet, of eating with and blessing each and every one of them, even the one who would betray him, he reminds them, as he reminds us today, to continue to love each other, just as he has loved us. And in the verses that follow the parable of the rich man, Jesus comforts us tells us not to worry, reminding us of the unbreakable love and mercy of God who knows our needs, nudges us to stop worrying and obsessing but becoming channels of God's mercy, of helping realize God's dream in this world. And note that Jesus does not single one individual out. I wish he did, like, you know, Amazon, when he calls for the selling of possessions and giving to charity. He doesn't just call out just one single rich person, but he actually calls out everyone who has ears to hear, everyone who is seeking to follow him. He the you is the plural you addressed to the flock 
rich and poor, of all stripes and shapes, the whole church, because we can't do it alone, to participate in the kingdom work by sharing things in common and making sure that everyone is cared for. And maybe to our ears today, that's actually what sounds foolish. To trust that a group of people will carry out what seems like an impossible task that kind of goes against the self-preservation instinct. Except the very presence of us here in this space, 2,000 years later, is also borne by the legacy of the radical generosity and self-giving love of the early church, which earnestly sought to live the way of Jesus and won over hearts and souls of people, not by might, not by power, but by the love and spirit of Christ that paves way for love, mercy, and generosity. And the same spirit continues to call us and move us today to little flock of churches here, there, and everywhere, to Christ's ongoing ministry of loving and serving all of God's children. And we are invited to share not just our possessions, but our very lives. Imagine how different our world would be, a world that is so racked with greed and selfishness and discrimination of all kinds that seek to erase other people, like racism, sexism, ageism, homo and transphobia, wealth disparity. Imagine how different our world would be if just little flocks of just Christians who have tasted and known the grace of the living God also leaned into the way of Jesus. We can make a world possible where we no longer have to make human sacrifices to alter of guns and capital and power but a world in which love and mercy overflows from the church to the world, erasing all divisions. A world in which wealth flows from the rich to the poor, privileges shared with those who are oppressed, and beloved welcomes those who are maligned and marginalized. And the world in which we recognize everyone in the world, even that rich man, into a tightly cord the top, like, bond of love. May God's kingdom come. May God's will be done. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. And please take time to rate and review. And of course, we couldn't do this without your support. So if you would like to make a donation, you can text TGC Tribeca to 77977. That's TGC Tribeca to 77977. And your support is very much appreciated. Grace and peace to you.